morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Leffler, the missions director here at Bridgeway. Welcome again. Uh, you may have noticed that we've got a little special weekend here planned for you. We are launching uh, a brand new outreach ministry here at Bridgeway. It's really exciting, and there's many facets to it. It's called Defending the Cause, and it comes from Isaiah 117 uh, to defend the cause of the fatherless. So um, we've got a lot of planning and strategy behind a lot of things that we could do to come alongside fatherless youth um, in our community, in our church, and around the world. So uh, we're really excited about it. And um, after the service, uh, if, if you're feeling like you, there's some, you want some more information, you want to get involved, we have a lot of tables out there, a lot of different information, as well as... Um, a calendar of follow-up events where you can come and, and learn more about each individual topic. Uh, as well as, if you like the shirt I'm wearing, we're selling those as a fundraiser, $20 each, and 100% of the proceeds go to support the ministry. So, um, <clears throat> I have the privilege this morning of introducing to you a special guest speaker. Jed Medefind is the president of the Christian Alliance for Orphans, which uh, is an organization that exists to unite churches and nonprofit organizations um, in this movement to defend the cause of the fatherless. And prior to his stint with, um, as the president of Christian Alliance for Orphans, Jed uh, had many positions in the California State Legislature, as well as a term in the White House as a special assistant to Pre President George W. Bush, leading the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. Jed lives in Merced with his wife, Rachel, and five children. He has authored many books, including one for sale in the lobby called Upended, how Following Jesus Remakes Your world, Words and Your World. So would you please join me in welcoming Jed Medifin. Thank you, Matt, and thank you, Jake and band. Uh, I have just loved the worship here today and yesterday. Uh, so, so good. And, you know, it has been really exciting to look forward to this time with you guys because I have talked with a number of folks in the region as I was preparing for this, and it was really interesting. Every single one of them, three different guys that live in, in Sacramento and go to different churches, but all of them said, oh, that's a vibrant church. Oh, they are, they're making it real out there. And it just made me excited, and I just pray that I can be an encouragement to you this morning and, and a refreshment and a challenge all at the same time. Uh, so let's, let's say a word of prayer as we launch into this. Father, your people are gathering all over the globe at this very moment, Lord. May we join with them. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. May you draw us nearer to you, Lord, that we may reflect your heart in a world that so badly needs it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, analysts estimate that in the 1970s, the average city dweller was hit with 500 commercial messages every day. So buses, radio, billboards. Today, that number is estimated to be more than 3,000 commercial messages every day hitting the average city dweller. And even if that number is a little overblown, the reality is that all of us are receiving hundreds of thousands of commercial messages every single year. And, you know, it's not just that they're trying to, to hit our mind with information. They're trying to hit our hearts. It's not just trying to convince us that there's this car that will get you from here to there or some food that will fill your belly. They're actually making transcendent claims. They're trying to reach your, your deepest parts. They're making what we could almost say are spiritual claims. Let, let's look at a few of these here 
on, on the, uh, the PowerPoint. So, you know, when they're selling you a motorcycle, they are, they are not just selling you a motorcycle, they're selling you freedom. And, you know, if, if you're going out to buy some beer, it's not just beer you're buying, you're buying community. And chocolate, it's no longer just chocolate, a tasty little treat. Actually, you can nourish your soul. And, of course, this, this next one just comes right out and says it. Well-fitting jeans are true religion. <laughs> what do you think James would have to say about that? And, and it's not just in the ordinary places, right? Television and, and uh, you know, the bus signs and, and things like, you know, you go online and the moment you try to find a news site, this lady pops up on your screen and she's, Refi now. Obama urges homeowners, refi now. <laughs> or are you, you know, you're watching a movie and there's this carefully placed product right in the middle of the show and you just, you just, even subconsciously, you don't realize you're being advertised to. Or you're in, in the airport and you go to the restroom and you just want a couple minutes to stop and think and right up there in front of you, you think there's one place you can sit and think, but no, not even in the stall. <laughs> And so these, these claims, they're everywhere, and they stretch the meaning of truth and the, the very meaning of words almost beyond recognition. I remember hearing a California political operative just lamenting his own inability to break through the noise with his messages, saying, our society is diseased with messages. And so here's the question. When claims have become so hyperventilated, so overblown, so relentless, how do we convey a message that really is worthy of that kind of language? That offers real freedom, real community, real nourishment for the soul, true religion. When hot dogs are awesome, how do we convey an awesome God? Or when the latest hair removal technique is amazing, how do we talk about amazing grace? Here's a simple reality. If our message hinges on just more hyperbole or more flashy, flashy entertainment or just being funny, we will be heard for a moment and then just quickly forgotten, just like the dancing refi lady. But there is one great foil to the made-up world of marketing. And that is something that is tangible, something that is touchable, something that is concrete. If an idea can be made smellable and tasteable and visible and touchable, it can break through all the competing messages like a bulldozer through a Hollywood set. So if we are to bear faithful witness to the gospel in a marketing-weary age, we must make grace touchable. And you know, there, there are a lot of ways to do that, so many different ways to do that, but I would propose that one of the most potent is to live out the biblical call to care for the orphan in distress. Why is that? Because when, when Christians love the orphan in distress, we make God's heart, his deepest character, visible to the world in an unforgettable way. Do you think about the gods of ancient Greece and Rome? Who was it that they were interested in? 
It was the generals and the great athletes and the beautiful people. The rest of the folks, they were kind of part of the set. But the God of the Bible, he says that he is interested in a very real and deep and personal way in the child that is the embodiment of the opposite, the most destitute, the most alone. I think of this, this great article I read a while back in, the, in National Geographic, and it was about solar, solar flares and storms on the sun. And it had these amazing pictures of the, of the sun just blazing in its glory, and these, these huge loops of plasma that would shoot up from the surface of the sun and form this giant loop of intense heat. Anything that would touch it from Earth would just be initially, instantly be incinerated. And this loop was large enough, the article described, to encircle 20 Earths. And the article said, and the sun is just a, quote, unexceptional star. And you think about God, and he flung forth millions, perhaps billions of these stars all across the universe. And yet at the same time, this little boy who's huddled in a doorway and you can count every one of his ribs and the middle class shopkeeper that walks by him does not even notice him. And yet the God of the Bible says, I care about him. He is of special importance to me. When Christians do the same, when we are, whether it's the orphan in Ethiopia or the little girl in the foster system nearby, and we say, she matters to me. We are reflecting the heart of God in a very powerful way. We are making grace visible in a way that will not soon be forgotten. So, you know, you see a mandate in Scripture there's a clear mandate, the, the verse that we have up there, Isaiah 1:17, defend the cause of the fatherless. But we need to know that that is only a mandate because it's simply a reflection of the heart of God. Because you see the same exact phrase in Deuteronomy where God says, I am a defender of the fatherless. Or you think of the verse we know so well, James 1:27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And that phrase, to look after orphans and widows, or sometimes it's translated to visit orphans and widows, it shows up only a few other times in the New Testament. And one of the, the main ones is in Luke where Zechariah is celebrating his, his, his hymn of praise and he says that God has visited his people. See, that same love that we are to show to the orphan in distress is simply a reflection of the way that God has showed up for us. Ultimately, this is the heart of the Christian story. Because what is the gospel if it is not the amazing, true story of the God who pursued us when we were destitute and alone? 
and who found us and who rescued us and who draws us to himself and who invites us to call him Abba, Daddy, to live as his sons and daughters. So as Christians just simply live these things out in our own lives, whether that's through adopting or fostering or becoming a mentor to a child who has no other adult to be deeply involved with them or supporting this kind of work all around the world, we are making the gospel visible. We are making grace touchable. A friend of mine, Esther, is now in her 20s. But as she was growing up, um, when she was just a little girl, her father abandoned the family and her mother remarried. Uh, but it was, it was a very bad situation, abusive. And, and finally, um, this second father left as well. And her mother, just in, in brokenness and desperation, she just decided that she wanted nothing more to do with Esther either. And so she kicked her out of the house. And so in her mid-teens, Esther was heading into the foster system. But there was a church where Esther had attended from time to time. And there was a family in the church that found out about this. And they approached her and said, Esther, if you'd, if you'd be willing, we'd love for you to come and live with us and be a part of our family. And Esther told me, you know, all my life I had heard about the God who was my father and the God who loved me deeply. But I never really believed it until I experienced it like that through the Alice's. And the Ellis's will be the place where she goes home for Christmas. And the Ellis's, Luther, this big 6'8 guy with big muscles, is going to be the one that walks her down the aisle when she gets married. See, she is tasting, she is feeling, she's experiencing grace made touchable in Luther and Rebecca Ellis. And you know, it's not only the fatherless that need to experience this. See, I I believe that the number one question in the human heart is not whether God exists. That's a real question. It's an important one. It's one I've struggled with at times, to be honest. But, But ultimately, I think most people deep down know there is a creator. But what we struggle with is whether this creator is really the loving father that the Bible describes him as and whether he cares about me. And when we come to understand that God cares deeply and passionately for the orphan, for the most destitute child, then we can believe that he cares about us because that child is us. And when we experience that kind of love lived out in a Christian community that makes a priority of loving the orphan in distress, we see that truth made visible and touchable in a way that no intellectual apologetic ever could. Now, there's a lot of stories I could tell that would, that would kind of demonstrate this lived out. But I want to show a short video clip of the Wagner family. You saw, you saw a little glimpse of them actually earlier in the prior video. But they're a very ordinary family, working class. He's a firefighter. Um, when they got married, she wanted to have six kids. He wasn't sure he wanted to have any. And they had, they had one little girl and then, then another little boy. And, and, and he actually was born deaf. And through their journey of, of walking that with their son, they, they became 
aware that there were many children in the foster system with these special needs that made them, uh, it's, it, often it seemed unadoptable because of those special needs. And so they decided that they could adopt one. And then another, and this led them on this, this remarkable journey. And we'll just get a little, little short window into it now. So let's, let's go ahead and play that video clip. Chosen and dearly loved. That's true for each of the Wagner's kids, and it is true for each of us. And I could share a lot of just amazing stories with my work. I get the privilege of interacting with people who are making it real like that every day. There's Elizabeth and Glenn. You know, they, they love sailing. They live down in Orange County, and they love sailing, and they had this great boat dock in the harbor there and, and a, a, the slip of their own that they owned. And But they... they were on this journey and they felt this sense of clear calling to adopt these three children from Rwanda. And they didn't have the funds to make that to make that happen. And there were others in the church that actually came alongside and helped them financially, but they still were short and they ended up selling their boat dock so that they, they could use those funds to bring those three children home. And I think of a guy named Emmanuel in, in Liberia who grew up actually on the streets. He was an orphan himself, but, but he did well, and he, he actually escaped that life, and he made it big, and he had access to these Western organizations and, and good salaries with, with, with the government there. And, and, and he decided that God was calling him to go back and work with the children on the streets, and that's where he's pouring his life out today. And I think of Justin and Shannon, they're a couple in their, in their early 30s, and, and one year ago today, he was making well over $200,000 as a salesman. And today, he, he is making a quarter of that, leading a small nonprofit that is, that is engaging Christians and caring for orphans. And, and there's this older couple, they're in their 70s, but for many, many years, they have provided short-term care for kids coming into the foster system. And, and this older gentleman has a terminal disease, and he, he doesn't have long to live, but every single child who comes through their home, even for a few days, he, he makes them a hand, handmade little red wagon. To take, for them to take with them so that the, they will know at least at one point in their life that they were loved. And each of these things is, is just a little bit of touchable grace. A red wagon, a sold boat slip, so many other things. And you know, the church at its best has always been known for this. In the, the days of the Roman Empire, the Romans had a practice called exposing. If there was a child that was unwanted because maybe it was female and the parents had wanted a male, maybe it was deformed, maybe it was just inconvenient, they would take the newborn out and leave it outside of the city walls for the elements and the wild animals. And Christians although they were a small and persecuted minority, earned a reputation as a people who would go outside the city walls and find those children and rescue them and raise them as their own. And at the best points in church history, all throughout history, from Afra of Augsburg, who you've probably never heard of, this amazing woman, a former prostitute, who, who began to take in children from her community and help other Christians adopt, or, or George Mueller, or so many others, the church has been known as a people who defend the cause of the fatherless. And you know what's so exciting? We are re-earning that reputation. All over the countries, I visit churches and 
mega churches and mini churches and house churches and everything in between, there are people that are saying, I am stirring to this. I am waking in a fresh way. I'm sensing that God is calling me in this. And, you know, in Colorado, it's a great story. About in 2008, there were more than 900 children waiting to be adopted in the foster system there. And the churches of Colorado have been very active in this. And Focus on the Families played a big role in that. And Project 127 and a number of organizations, they're trying to get individual Christians involved. And today that number of children waiting in the system is less than 400. They have cut it in more than half. And, you know, I've talked with the head of social services there who, who oversees the adoption programs, and she says, there's no question who's doing this. It's the Christians. They're taking kids that previously no one wanted. And in Broward County, Florida, there's a great network of churches there called Four Kids of South Florida. And today, virtually every single child that comes into the foster system in that area, which is, it's a big county, it's, it's almost as large as Miami-Dade right next door, and, and every child that comes into the system is touched by a Christian family in some way, whether it's short-term emergency care, short-term foster placements, long-term foster placements, foster to adopt. They are touched by grace in some real way, at least that once in their life. And the reality is that, you know, there are about 100,000 kids nationwide that are waiting to be adopted. And if just one in every three Christian churches, just one in three, adopted one child, there would essentially be no waiting children in the foster system. And, and, you know, of course, as you t- start to talk about the global scale of the needs of orphans, it becomes overwhelming, and, and statistics, I think, can be a dead-end road sometimes. But the simple reality is that the local church in every nation can be the answer to the needs of the orphans in their midst. And I believe that is God's intent. Because, you know, when it comes to food and shelter and physical things like that, government can provide those things on a mass scale. Large nonprofits can deliver food and medicine and shelter, but the deepest needs of a child are for love and belonging and nurture. And those are things that cannot be provided in assembly line fashion. So we cannot outsource love for the orphan to government or just to to big ministries. It takes individual believers one at a time saying, I will open my heart, I will open my home to these precious children. Now, in case it isn't clear, not every Christian is called to adopt. But every Christian community together is called to love the orphan in distress. And there is a place for every member of the community in that journey. You know, for some, it is going to be adoption. For some, it might be foster care. For some, it's going to be mentoring. For some, it's going to become a, becoming a CASA, an advocate for a foster youth. For others, it will be becoming a surrogate grandparent to a family that is fostering or providing babysitting or running errands for, for the adoptive or foster parents. Or, and if nothing else, just supporting these things financially, whether with a church adoption fund or work with orphans around the globe. There is a place for everyone in this journey. And I'll tell you this, everyone, everyone who is involved in it will not be left the same. But I think there needs to be a word of warning as well. Because when grace becomes touchable, it becomes costly. See, abstract 
grace. Grace up here, grace solely in language, is no more expensive than a bumper sticker or a wristband or a like on Facebook. But touchable grace is paid for in sweat and sometimes in blood. Abstract grace has that new car smell. Touchable grace smells like spit up and dirty diapers. Abstract grace seeks to do good from a distance, like a CEO sending his secretary to go pick up a sick kid at school. But touchable grace holds that screaming baby to his chest all night long. Abstract grace spends much of its time trying to get other people to do good things. But touchable grace primarily seeks to motivate others by doing what it hopes others will eventually do. And abstract grace can always have a storybook ending. But touchable grace, although it will end well, also has great disappointments and aches along the way. You see, every orphan's journey as an orphan begins with a tragedy. And often it gets worse from there. And so when we as Christians open our hearts and our lives and our homes to the orphan in distress, we are inviting some of that tragedy into our lives. It's been that way for my wife and for me. You know, when we, when we began our adoption journey, we were, we were eventually matched with a precious little girl uh, in Ethiopia. And um, she had been abandoned in a forest. And, and so her little bodily body, even though she was estimated to be six months old, she was just seven pounds. And, but we fell in love with her. And we named her after my wife, Ayana Rachel. And our extended family celebrated with us just as in the birth of a child. And we, 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 just, we, were, we were just so eager to go meet her. And we were making plans to travel and get her. And I got a call at work. And, and the agency said, Jedder, um, could you go home and be with your wife? We have something we need to tell you. And, and I said, can you tell me now? They said, it'd be better if, if you're with your wife. And so I just went home immediately. We called the agency back. And they said, we just, we're so sorry to tell you, but your little girl died. She got pneumonia just 24 hours ago. And her body was so weak, it just took her like that. And, oh, how we grieved. It's amazing how much you can grieve for a child that you have never held. And, you know, we were, it was this strange experience of just mourning and yet knowing that we were tasting just the smallest bit of the world's pain. So many children living without their parents, so many parents living without their children, so many little boys and girls calling out and no one in the night to comfort them. We were tasting just a little bit of that and yet it was so bitter. So we must understand that loving the orphan mirrors the gospel story not only in its beauty, but also in its costliness. Like a real, touchable cross, touchable grace can be full of splinters. It's full of splinters when the boy we've been mentoring goes back to gang life. It's full of splinters when the little girl we've adopted, that the bonding process with her is way, way, way harder than we'd imagined. It's full of splinters when we're fostering a little boy and we've fallen in love with him and we want to adopt him, but, but the system brings him back to a situation we know is going to be terribly, terribly harmful for him. And that is why we must not walk this road alone. Because it is going to be hard. 
That's why God gives the church. This is a journey that is meant to be walked in community. And that is why I'm just thrilled about this new ministry that Bridgeway is starting because it's not just this idea of recruiting some families and someone over here is going to adopt and someone over there is going to foster and someone over here is going to mentor. It is a community walking this road together and supporting and encouraging and mourning together and celebrating together. That is the way that God intended the church to be. And loving the orphan draws us into that as, as well as anything possibly can. And as we do, as we enter into this road together, we find one thing to be powerfully true. Love for orphans transforms. You know, there's a lady I know in in Arkansas that works getting, just recruiting families, encouraging Christians to get involved in the foster system. And she puts it this way. She says, and I just love her accent. She says, I see those children changed. I see those families changed even more. And it is true. Because when we open ourselves to the orphan in distress, we are opening ourselves to something that is very close to the heart of God. And so the children are changed as they experience love that they have come to live without. But we are changed as we begin to trade a a religion of of self-development for a very robust and costly and beautiful faith And a community is changed as it begins to walk this very costly but beautiful road together. And finally, the watching world is changed as it looks in and it sees, perhaps for the first time, the gospel made visible. This is the kind of thing that can break through the noise of a marketing-saturated culture because it is grace made touchable. It is the gospel made visible. It is God's heart made very, very tangible. Let's pray. Father, help us to love as you have first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we transition to the next part of the service, I'd like to invite our panel to come on up. And uh, we're just going to hear some real-life stories of folks who have been walking this road. All right. So many of you know some of the panelists. You'll get to know them better over the course of the next 20 minutes or so. Um, But right immediately to my left here, Jeff and Claire. Jeff's on staff here. Claire is a professor and, among other things, mother and a lot lot of different hats. But um, tell us just first of all kind of what launched you into your journey with foster care and adoption. Yeah, definitely. Um, From a very young age, uh, surrounded by the concept of adoption, of caring for people in Uh, other countries that are less fortunate than myself here in the States. And uh, I remember uh, having an aunt and uncle uncle that had an orphanage in a school in Haiti and um, just the interactions of hearing about how they were getting kids adopted into families, how they were trying to find their biological families because a lot of times they'll get lost because of natural disaster, that sort of thing. And so I was just inundated by the concept of caring for someone outside my immediate family. I remember in church, I I was always encouraging my parents, like at seven and eight and nine years old, to um, go and be a part of the compassion team. We could support people financially and help pay for their schooling and uh, giving them clothes and health care. And so that was very 
God really pressed that upon me at a very young age, and that continued on through junior high and high school, going to Mexico and building houses for families and seeing all the orphans. And it just, it really impacted me in a, in a very strong way. And I, I, I decided that from a young age that I wanted to be a part of that when I got older, when I could make that decision, I wanted to help in some capacity. And so I met Claire uh, back in high school and we started dating in college. And before we got married, we, we discussed, okay, well, what does this mean to our lives? What does it mean to our family, um, this concept of adoption? And so we talked about Haiti, but uh, it got shut down a little bit, and I'll let her kind of explain that. There's different requirements for international adoption, and specifically with um, the one in Haiti. Um, you had to be 35, and we're not even there yet, so we still wouldn't be able to have children. And, of course, the cost as well was very expensive, something we couldn't afford. So I began to research other options and came across foster care. And with foster care, uh, it pretty much doesn't cost anything to be able to adopt. So for, uh, for someone like us who we don't have the resources to spend a lot of money um, with, with a domestic or interna international adoption, we're able to have uh, multiple children um, because the resources are provided and there are a lot of children waiting in foster care that need homes. So um, that is how we ended up shifting our, our over towards foster care. And Clara, you, you shared with me that, that there's been a lot of joy in this journey, but some real struggles as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, a lot of the times you hear when people talk about adopting, because we want people to be interested in adopting, um, that every, it's great and, and fantastic, and it is, but there's also a lot of hardships and trials, because these kids that come, especially from foster care and from interna um, international adoptions, are severely neglected emotional, physical, sexual abuse. And they come to us uh, often very broken. And what you end up with then is a lot of attachment issues, behavioral issues. We learn more about child development than I ever thought that I would. That's not my area of study. And I had to spend a lot of time researching that to understand what was going on. Um, to give an example, um, my, our younger son, we have two sons we've adopted uh, about four years ago, uh, when two and a half and four and a half at the time. And then we currently have a, a two-year-old that we're fostering. Well, um, my son that we adopted, uh, the younger one, Johnny, he has a lot of attachment issues. And he pretty much didn't want to have anything to do with me after the first couple months. I would put my hand on his leg, you know, just to, to be nice. And he'd take it, pick it up. I don't want you touching me. I don't want you around me. If you look around the room looking for anyone else to um, help with anything. Even still today, there's still issues. He um, <laughs> jammed uh, a toilet bowl cleaner brush into the toilet the other day at school. Um, and when they asked him, you know, why did you do that? Oh, I wanted mom to be mad. That's attachment issues, and that's what you have to deal with on a regular basis. And it's hard work uh, and certainly requires a different type of parenting. The joy with this, though, is what makes it worth it is when you see the improvement. He went from you know, initially we still have issues, but he went from, from not wanting to really touch me and be involved to with specific ways that we've worked on parenting and, and behavioral issues. Now he comes to me with his, you know, I need my shoe tied, I need help. He wants to hug me. He wants love from me. We still have a long way to go, but these steps are what makes, uh, it's amazing when you see each step and improvement that they make. Um, so it is hard work as well as as a joy. Mm. 
Thank you, Claire. And Jeff, tell us a little bit about just as a father, an adoptive father, and maybe some of the conversations or interactions you've had in that role. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was thinking about when we're processing, talking about this, I was thinking back to a conversation I was having with uh, my eldest son, Isaiah, and um, he was talking about, you know, well, why are you, got you and mom on stage, and what are you guys doing? And I say, well, we're talking about, you know, how you guys came and lived with us. And um, I told him the story about us looking through these books uh, at the adoption agency, and, you know, it's a picture of a kid. And, and it was in that moment that I realized um, that's not just a number. It's not just a, you know, we have this many kids that need to be adopted. Like, these are real children with real stories. And, you know, reading about Johnny and how he wants, just wants to have a dad in this book, and he wants the dad to take him fishing, or, you know, little Sally just really wants a family uh, to love her, and she wants somebody to help her learn how to read. Like, that's, that's a big deal. And all of a sudden, I was like, wow, this is a human issue. <laughs> and so... I was telling him about, you know, not obviously in that amount of detail, but I was telling him, like, we looked through these books, and we saw you and your brother Johnny, and we said, we want you. Like, we chose you, just like in the video you showed. Like, and the, little, the light in his eyes, he just lit up. He's like, wow, you know, that's awesome. You know, I, it, we didn't just, yeah. It, it, it breaks my heart, well, all the other kids that don't have families yet, but just to be able to share that with him, his joy, it was, it was, it was incredible. And just lastly, um, I was thinking and processing through this, and, and in the Psalms it talks about how uh, God knits us together in our, in our parents, in our mom's womb, and um, from the beginning he knows our most innermost being. And in, in the Gospels it talks about how Jesus said, you know, let little children come to me. Like it was very intentional that everybody has a purpose in life. And so this was my chance to be intentional uh, with joining and, and making and helping these kids be part of a family, and so uh, that going forward, I'm hoping that us as church body, whether whatever way you choose to be involved, that you can be intentional about it. Great, and and Claire, maybe one more question. Um, just how how can a church community and, and folks who aren't maybe directly involved in foster care c- come alongside your family and support families like yours? Well, yes, because everyone obviously doesn't uh, have the ability or or the desire to adopt, and we're certainly not trying to convince everyone to go out and adopt. Um, But there are a lot of needs and struggles that we have as adoptive families, um, just with people understanding that that parenting an adoptive child is very different than parenting a biological child, and and our methods sometimes look bizarre to people. Um, but any, you know, coming and understanding to, to different meetings, and hopefully we're going to be having some support groups for adoptive parents. Anyone else that's interested in learning more, and and so any knowledge you learn, any information you learn about what it means to be an adoptive parent and how that affects our lives and our parenting style, and then being supportive of that because we end up often being um, attacked in various ways uh, because it seems bizarre or it's not understood. Of course, uh, with families who have multiracial families, there's also issues that, a lot of questions that come up and things that deal with that. I think one of the most uh, examples of that would be my uh, brother who had um, uh, pictures of uh, my sons up on his uh, fridge and his friend came over and said, oh, are those the kids that you're uh, sponsoring? They said, no, those are my nephews. And I said, well, you should have said yes, and they're very expensive, and it takes about 20 bucks a month. You should help out. (laughs) (laughs) But you get questions like that all the time. And if people become more aware um, and and understand the different parts of that, it helps us a lot. And there's a bunch of tables out there that have information. You can help out with donating supplies every time we get new kids in. Uh, There's completely different needs. along with mentoring and other things. So there is a lot of ways to help out, and even the smallest way of just becoming more knowledgeable about what we do. Mm, Thank you. Well, 
Right next door, here we've got Lori and Carl. Some of you may not have met them yet. They just moved to the Sacramento area in uh, July, I guess. And um, Carl's active duty Air Force. Um, but they have also walked uh, the journey of adoption. And I, I know that even before you actually adopted, there, there were some real challenges in that road. Can you tell us a little about that, Lori? Sure. Um, we knew that we wanted to adopt for quite some time. And um, we were shown pictures of two brother and sister uh, in Russia and really felt called to adopt them. And so we started that process. And about that time, Russia closed all international adoptions, and that lasted for almost two years. And in that process, we lost our children. (laughs) They aged out of the system, and um, in our hearts, they're still part of our family, but we had to regroup. And at that point, we wanted to quit. Our hearts were broken, we were done, and God said no. And we said, okay, God, how about Ethiopia? And God said, no, Russia. And so we, we had to make a few changes and, and um, reevaluate. But two years ago, we brought our son Charlie home. He was two and a half years old uh, from Russia. Hmm. T- tell, us, tell us one story of, of a joy in this journey with with Charlie, um, you know, we're, we're talking about challenges. There's also great beauty. We don't want to gloss over that. There, there are a lot of joys. Um, I, one that really stands out to me was actually before we brought him home. And uh, we had been for our first visit and to sign the document saying that we wanted to adopt him and gone home. We had to wait three months for our court date. And we walked back into the orphanage expecting to have to reintroduce ourselves um, he saw us from, I don't know, what was it, 50 feet away at least, and jumped out of the sandbox, threw down his sand pail, and came running with his arms open wide. You know, mama, mama, mama. Um, even at two and a half, he, he knew he wanted a mama and a papa, and he knew who we were and wanted to come home. Mm. And, and tell us about one particularly difficult moment. Maybe, maybe if, you know, if, you, if you're willing to share it, a low point along the way. Um, I, I think the lowest point for me, you know, you come home with, with this precious little one and you think that you have plans. I'm going to rock him to sleep every night and we are going to bond and, and it's going to be so awesome. And the first night you get him home and he won't let you hold him and he screams and a lot of tantruming and it was just all day long the first few weeks and at some point I was holding him and he was crying and I was crying and I, I just cried out to God and I said I said God help me help me I don't I, I don't know what to do and I just had this vision as I'm holding this two and a half year old of my infant son going through heroin withdrawal alone in a hospital with nobody to hold him and nobody to love him and in that moment um, God just gave me peace, and he helped me to see that um, that what I was doing, I was doing for an infant. <laughs> I, was, I was healing wounds, you know, and, and teaching him to accept love and teaching him to accept family because he'd never experienced that before. Mm. Thank you, Lori. Carl, um, how about for you? As, as a father, um, as, as a Christian, what has this um, meant for you in, in terms of seeing, seeing God's heart? I, I think through the process of this adoption, it really, um, it really brought to light um, the 
truly the love of God for us. I mean, I grew up in a church. Um, so from a very young age. We knew that knew that God loved us. Knew that uh, we were part of His family, and um, but it wasn't until the birth of our um, biological child that I really started thought, "Well, okay, so this is really how God loves us. Just how much His heart reaches out to us." And I thought I understood it then, but when we started the adoption process, it was some. It was a whole new revelation because it just um, really um, pointed out and showed me that just like these kids who know they're missing something, they may not know why, but they know they're missing something, and they're just desperately wanting a, a family, a mama and daddy, and it just... God just really laid it on my heart. That's just like us looking to him. Because we, we know we're missing something, and, and God is right there reaching out to us, pursuing us when we don't, we, don't, we don't even know what we need. And it's just like in adoption. These little kids are just waiting, and they've got lots going on in their lives just like we do, and God still loves us and wants us to be part of his family. Hmm. Thank you, Carl. Lori. Well, down at the end here, the couple that needs no introduction. Um, I think most of all of you know Jeff and Tiffany um, on staff here. and Matt, <laughs> You guys know him, but I don't. <laughs> Actually, Matt was the one that, that brought me here and, and just walked me through the vision for all of us. And um, they've been on a journey of their own as well. Um, just uh, uh, something that I, I, I'm sure some of you know that very well, and we can't talk about all of it, but you have spent a lot of time in Haiti interacting with orphans uh, at orphanages. And um, so, so maybe, Matt, you could start by just sharing some of the things that you have observed firsthand as you've interacted with these children and orphanages there. Well, first I want to take the opportunity. Um, a lot of you guys are familiar with our story um, over the last couple of years working in Haiti and the uh, that son of God orphanage that was trafficking the kids. And, you know, we had a hand in, in getting that shut down and trying to adopt a couple of kids out of there. And so we're just, like I said, I want to take this opportunity in front of you to really thank you for um, coming alongside of us and just joining us in prayer and reading our updates on the city and just allowing us to use that platform. Um, because, you know, when, when I'm alone in a country like Haiti and involved in these type of situations, um, Knowing that my church is is home praying for me uh, is extremely encouraging and supportive for me. So I wanted to start with that. Um, but uh, you know, we've talked a lot about adoption here, but there's a lot more facets of this. And one of those pieces is global orphan care. How do we? What do we do with these orphans in other countries? We're not going to be able to bring them all to the United States, and that's not necessarily the answer. Um, <clears throat> but I have. In my time in Haiti, I've, I've been to 10 or 12 different orphanages, and, um, and, and I've not been to orphanages in other countries, but just from the stories that I've heard, uh, cultures are different. In Haiti, the kids tend to be very boisterous and in your face, and in other countries, I've heard Russia, um, the kids tend to be very docile and stoic and everything, but uh, ultimately, the common thread among all the kids is that they're just, they're empty and they're starving for a family. And, um, 
uh, you know, Psalm 68 says that God sets the lonely in families. And through my experience in Haiti, it just uh, has become very clear that man has created this orphanage system as a means to stop the bleeding of this orphan epidemic. But from the very beginning, God ordained the family to be the solution for um, for these orphans. And so, uh, especially with my role as the missions director, I have a deep heart for mobilizing the local churches in these countries. Uh, and, you know, we're called to make disciples of all nations. And so if we can disciple them and teach them what the Bible says about orphan care, um, I have a, a major passion for that. Um, and just to share a personal story about um, setting the lonely in families, it, our daughter Lori that we are continuing to try to bring home, the first time we were able to bring her out of the orphanage last year, um, we got to interact with her and ask her some questions, and if she liked living at the orphanage, she said no. And we said, well, where, where would you like to live if you could choose? And we were expecting her to say, well, I want to come home with you and live in America. Uh, but she didn't say that. She just said that... Um, I, wa I just want a family that loves me. And so, uh, as you can imagine, that was enough for us to be like, um, okay, we're going to try to provide that. Mm. Thanks, Matt. Well, Tiffany, you've spent quite a bit of da time down there as well. How, how about sharing a story, maybe one where you, you particularly saw the need, but also touchable grace in the midst of it? Sure. Um, I've also gotten to go to many orphanages in Haiti, and some of them have been really good and treat the kids well, and some of them have not. Um, but when we as Americans walk into an orphanage, we are bombarded with the sights and the smells that we are not used to, um, whether it's a hole in the ground that 85 kids call a toilet, or seeing these little kids run around um, naked or with dirty diapers, or seeing their distended bellies and wondering, well, do you have worms, or do you have malnutrition problems, or looking at their little hands and feet and realizing that they're covered in scabies. Um, and we as Americans tend to halt a little bit and draw back wondering, should I touch you? Are you contagious? Um, but when, um, what I've experienced being there is that um, each one of those little kids, whether they're sitting in quiet little rows waiting for you to come to them or whether they're swarming you, um, they're looking at you with questioning eyes wondering, are you here for me? Are you here to rescue me? And, and that breaks down your defenses immediately, um, whether they have a dirty diaper or whether... Um, they have skin problems or other things, you, you just want to reach out. And one of those um, experiences is um, when we were leading a team in March from a team in San Diego, um, we, I had five best friends. I had five little girls that were completely surrounding me and not wanting to leave my side. And so we sat down to watch the VBS skit. Um, and I had girls on each side and behind me, and one little girl got the prize um, position of sitting on my lap for the skit. And so we, we watched that, and then when it was over, we got up to play some games, and I realized that my lap was completely wet. And the little girl had peed her pants while sitting on my lap. And this was not an infant. It was like an eight-year-old. And so I was just kind of appalled. Like, you couldn't just get up and go to the bathroom and come right back. But then I realized it struck me that she knew if she gave up her seat, somebody else would have sat in it immediately. And she knew that in that 10 minutes, she just needed somebody to hold her and love her. And that, that mattered more than going to the bathroom normally. And that just tugged on my heart because I realized that's how desperate they were for love and affection. And it didn't take long to give it. It just took the 10 minutes of sitting on my lap. And 
And it reminded me of a story I read um, in a book called Adopted for Life, where the author talks about Jewish prayer customs. And he said that ancient Jews and the early Christians didn't pray with their heads bowed and their arms or their hands folded. Um, they actually prayed in a posture of submission, um, crying out to God. So they were very noisy, and they prayed with their arms stretched to the sky and their heads looking at heaven kind of like this. And um, the author reminded us that that's how every toddler looks when they want to be picked up from their mom and their dad wanting attention. And so I was, I was just reminded that we are those orphans sometimes. We, we sin or we mess up or we make bad decisions, and that creates that dirtiness in our lives. But if we call out to God and we reach up to him, um, that he will always come pick us up, and he will always um, get dirty in order to save us and love us. And so that just what is what made me recognize that these kids are just like us. And even when they're dirty and even when, um, you know, they have behavioral issues or whatever it is, um, that we can relate to that. And so um, whenever I see these little kids reaching up, I don't hesitate to pick them up anymore because I'm just reminded about how much God loves me and picks me up when, when I've messed up. Mm. Great. Thank you, Tiffany. Well, we, yeah. We have a lot to ponder here. Each, each of you have shared things that I imagine uh, are all whirring through our minds. But Matt, what, what would you say, where do we go from here as, as both as the church community, as individuals, uh, thoughts on next steps? Sure. Thank you. First of all, uh, would you guys mind thanking uh, Jed for coming and being with us today? Um, so... If you're feeling like God may be tapping you, like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. I'm moved by this issue. I'm moved by this sermon, but um, it's kind of the first I've really thought about it. Uh, we have people in the lobby that can answer questions for you. There's really six branches of the ministry, and I won't go into it now, but you can go out there and check it out. There's something for everybody. So if, if it's, you know, if you want to bring a child into your home, that's amazing. But that's, you know, not everybody's in that place in life. So, um there's a lot of different uh, roles that we can play through this. So um, there are people in the lobby to answer your questions as well as all of us will be in the lobby if you want to talk to us. Uh, and we, we have a, a calendar of events scheduled over the next um, six weeks or so where you can come and get more information on a variety of topics. And that's out in the lobby as well. So, um, yeah, if I could close in prayer and then we've got a closing challenge for you. And uh, thank you for being here. Lord God, we thank you for the service. Um, I thank you so much for Jed and his heart to come here and just be with us, Lord. And um, I thank you for this panel. I thank you for the work that you're doing in their lives and um, uh, serving children um, through them. Lord, and I pray for all of the kids out there that are still waiting and, and, um, and hoping. And Lord, we know that you're the, the ultimate father to the fatherless. So I just pray for your comfort over them uh, today. And, uh, Lord, I just pray for your stirring in the hearts of the congregation, Lord. And if there's something that you want them to get involved in, Lord, I pray that you make that abundantly clear to them. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have, and we give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.